poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a master coach, founder of 1000 Days Sober, writer, and longtime collaborator with Triton Poker, the one and only Lee Davey. I'm going to say straight away that I've met my fair share of amazing and compelling human beings but I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like Lee. His ability and willingness to be open, raw, and deeply honest about his feelings, emotions, and life experiences is a very beautiful thing. And in the space of two short hours, he genuinely affected the lens in which I view myself and the world around me, and that is no small blessing. Before you dive in, however, I do want to offer you a warning This episode should be listened to without any small children bebopping around because we're going to dive deeply into some mature subject matter. You've been warned. Now, in today's conversation with Lee Davey, you're going to learn how Lee found and fell in love with the world of poker, how Lee believes we can all be more emotionally available to our children, what he finds to be the essence of high performance and flow at the poker table, and much, much more. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you writer, creator, coach, and healer, the one and only, Lee David. Lee, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing? Thank you. uh, I'm doing really well. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Brad. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You've been, you know, you've been in the wings for a while. We've been trying to logistically set it up and finally the stars have aligned and super happy, grateful and pumped to dive in. Yeah, sure. Fire away. What do you want to know from my little soul? Okay. Let's start out with your, your little soul and talk about your journey into poker. Um, what led to that journey? Why? Were you drawn in and compelled to enter the poker world and, you know, be in it for a decade of your life? Mm, okay. So I'll try to tell this story in a different way because I've been on quite a different number of podcasts. So for anybody who's listened to it again, thinking, oh, no, listening to Lee's story again, I'll try to change it up a little bit. We'll, we'll, um, we'll get some stuff that, that you haven't talked about, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. So I can tell you, like, my first experience of cards. So my first experience of cards was actually in the pubs. So in uh, in the UK, it's a big pub culture. I grew up in a small mining village called Ogmo Valley in South Wales with um, around 8,000 people living there. And as a kid, you just wanted to get in the pub and you wanted to get in there as early as you could. How come? And uh, status. And there's nothing else there to do. <laughs> so you, you literally, I mean, my, my, you know, when I reflect back on my childhood, my childhood was all about being an, trying to get, be an adult as quickly as I could. I hated school. 
and I just wanted to do what grown-ups did. And and I was a really good soccer player, so I got involved with older kids or, or men when I was a, a youngster. So I was always, you know, wanting to do what these people were doing. And so I got into the pubs really young. They're very lenient, or they were in South Wales. So they knew you were underage, but they just let you get in there. How, and that how, was when I... Do you mind well, if I, I ask how, how old you were then, how old you are now, like what timeline we're talking about? So I'm 46 now, going to be 47 in January. And when I first started the nip, when I first started drinking uh, around 14, so we were drinking quite consistently, you know, um, at 14. And that was the age, 14, 15, I started to play senior football as well. So on a Sunday, there was this football team called the Cafe Royales. And it was just a load of blokes that just went on the piss, you know, drinking all the time. And I started playing for them. I think I had to lie about my age and say that was 16. I can't remember, but I was playing for them really young. And of course, um, you would uh, play football on a Sunday morning and then you would go to the pub uh, and you would have your your chips and your sausages and just drink a, a load of beer. And, and I had no money then because I was in school. Um, the first guy who took me under his wing his name is Andrew we played centre midfield together and Andrew I remember Andrew he had a job in Forge he drove a BMW uh, he had a load of money compared you know where we were living and he used to buy all my beer and um, so yeah regularly on a Monday I would miss the first couple of lessons of school because I had a hangover um, and it was in those pubs that we learned to play cards so the games back then were three card brag and uh, uh, shoot the pool we used to play shoot the pool a lot um, so that's that's how I got into cards. Like it was literally pub culture. Could you, can I can I go back a little bit? Yeah, why, sure. Why were you so intent on being an adult as quickly as possible? Because I, I think I had this same pool growing up that like I just want to get bigger so I have more freedom, more latitude to do what I want to do, just so I can do cooler things, I can have money for all of those reasons, right? I think it's interesting mm. that as we become an adult. And, you know, I'm three years away from 40. You're three years away from 50. Okay, nowadays, don't remind me. <laughs> nowadays um, you know, we want to be more like kids, or at least I do. Like, I want to be mm. more like kids. I want to feel the excitement over silly little things, you know. Just, I think we kind of yearn for that. And I think it's just interesting, this psychology of human beings that we always kind of want to be in a place that we're not in the moment. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, great question. Uh, you know, as, as, as someone who's a master coach, I've spent thousands of hours working on myself, you know, particularly psychologically. So what is I mean, a master best... coach? So I, um, graduated from the Elementum Institute, uh, coaching Institute where they, um, teach people to, be a jack of all trades, master of none, really. So you, you, you're looking at the human experience and trying to cover as many touch points as you can. So when you're working with a client, um, you are informed about as much as you can around the full spectrum of the shit that's going to hit you in life, right? Rather than, for example, focusing on being an NLP practitioner or being a trauma coach, whatever it is. It's like being that... Um, more holistic kind of picture. Um, they call the people who graduate master coaches 
I'm always one of those that really struggles to kind of name myself. So it's like, okay, whatever. If you train me to be a master coach, I'll call myself a master coach. But people would call it a life coach, I guess. Uh, you know, that would, that would be it. And in my, in my countless hours of working on myself, you know, I look at my own personal life and say, well, what happened for me was there was, um, when I'm born, uh, the blue, the blue, well, when my dad's sperm is that egg and that zygote is formed, then the, the blueprint of the most majestic version of Lee Davies is already there in that cell, right? And that includes what I call my true self, right? Like the, the true beautiful nature of Lee. Some people call it soul. Some people call it God, whatever, right? And then as you come into the, the physical world and you're born, uh, at some point in childhood, uh, you develop the ego. And then, you know, I believe that the ego is then fragmented into various different parts and you stop living a, um, a, a, a true self-led existence and you start playing the outside in game. You, everything revolves around the ego and fitting in, not belonging um, and just really struggling like fuck to just be noticed, to be witnessed, all that kind of thing. And then when you get to like your 30s, your mid 30s and your 40s, you, it kind of reverses. You kind of like, you kind of realize, hang on a minute, like something's not right here. Um, this doesn't feel right to me. I don't feel right as a man. I don't feel right as a woman. I don't feel right as a father or husband. And all of a sudden, if you start feeling, do something about that, then the emergence of true self comes up again. Um, and then you can live more of a self-led life, which I believe means um, uh, building a better relationship with that fragmented ego um, and learning, you know, why those parts show up in your life and, and cause so much havoc. Right. So that's kind of like when, when you said, why is it that we don't want to be a kid when we're younger, but we do when we're older, that's kind of my overarching explanation on that point. Could you dive a little bit deeper into the fragmented ego and what you mean by that? Mm, sure. So there's a, um, a wonderful guy called Dr. Richard Schwartz, Schwartz. And in the 80s, when he was working with his clients, um, particularly around the area of trauma, um, he realized, uh, to cut it short, that whenever he was talking to people, they would say things like, I have this part. So this part of me. A good example is I, I specialize in helping people to change their relationship with alcohol. So very often my clients will say, yeah, there's this part of me that wants to drink, but there's this part of me that doesn't want to drink as well. Um, what Schwartz discovered in the 80s was when someone says there's a part of me that wants to drink, Schwartz believes there is actually a part of you that wants to drink. It's not just a saying. There is a part of you that wants to drink. Um, so his theory is we have um, true self. So we have this uh, soul, this essence, this part of us. Uh, a good example is when you're playing poker and you're in a state of flow. All time disappears and you just everything is just happening. You, you probably in that moment, true self is, is there. And then when you lose your shit, you go on tilt. There is a part of you that is reacting to the external stimuli. And that is attaching to an internal story that that part has really made its own story. And then it acts out in very predictable ways. So Schwartz helps you to identify these parts and to talk to these parts. Um, 
And these parts are literally have been developed in very early childhood, most of them, and frozen in time due to trauma, really to keep you safe, right? Really just to keep you safe. Um, so you can have conversations with these parts. So let's say, for example, you're playing poker and you've got a massive monkey tilt because some guy's just bluffed you and shown you his cards or whatever, right? All of a sudden, if you are used to experiencing a, a self-led life, you can all of a sudden realize that actually I'm not now, you know, true self is not in control of the wheel here, right? And then you can hover at the table or get away from the table and be like, okay, what part is present right now? And it could be a little part of you from childhood who was bullied when you was a kid, who was battered, who was called a chink, right? Who was dominated by other men. And now right now at the table, you've got this guy absolutely got you in a coffin. Like he's dominating you. And this little part of you is being triggered. And it's just uh, raising awareness of that. And, and, you know, in the moment, being able from true self to say, okay, I recognize you. I see you. I understand that you are really afraid right now of this guy. And you're trying to deal with that through anger. I've got this. Leave it to me. I've got this. There's that part. But then there's the other part of identifying your parts talking to them, understanding the burdens that they carry, and then offering them the opportunity to release those burdens. So Schwartz believes that there are three types of parts. There are exiles. So exiles are these parts that a lot of us won't even know exist that have really been hidden in your psyche, right? Shame, humiliation, embarrassment, deep trauma. They're not allowed to surface. And the way that they're not allowed to service is you have two other types of parts, a protector, and they're both protectors, like these managers, and then you have these firefighters. So the managers are, I don't know, maybe there's this little boy that wants to just free itself and just go to the gym and be amongst men and lift weights and just be free and just express itself. And then a protector part will be like, hey, you're not going to the gym. Because when you go there, there'll be just these huge muscly dudes and you'll just, you'll just be like a fucking spindle little weirdo. Get back down there. We're not going to the gym, right? That's an example of a protector part. A firefighter part is um, we're suddenly really overwhelmed. Let's say, um, let's say you're having sex with somebody. Um, you can't get it up. Uh, you feel utterly, completely humiliated. A part of you where you was humiliated when younger starts to, starts to come up. And a firefighter says, okay, we can't deal with this shit right now. I'm going to go and drink alcohol. Like, I'm just going to get out of my mind. I'm going to take drugs. I'm going to drink alcohol. I'm going to go and uh, do something to, to, to block you from coming up. I cannot allow you to emerge. So it becomes a, a goal of a, a really good, this, this um, is called internal family systems. So a, a goal of a good coach who is versed in internal family systems is really to help you identify these exiles um, and to love them and to ask them, what is it that you really do want to do? What is it you want to do? And then to the firefighters and the protector parts, hey, you know, would you like to unburden? Would you like a different role? And very often I found in the work, the protector parts don't want to be protecting you because it's too much fucking stress and hassle. And very often they want different roles. And if you can do that and get them to trust you as true self, all of a sudden, if we use poker as an example, you'll be at the poker table and you, you're going to be more lucky, Chewy, than Phil Helmuth, right? Because 
because you are you are recognizing and you're grow, growing a greater emotional body and what I call a greater window of tolerance of handling shit, right? Because you know who's who's in charge, right? Phil, pick on Phil Helmuth when he has one of his crazy rants, right? He probably doesn't know that the poker brat is in is is in control. He probably still thinks Phil Helmuth is in control, right? When it's not, it's this little poker brat, right? And that that is the push, that is the part that you need to work with to stop those explosive outbursts, which someone like Lucky Chewy um, has like they already done, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, it it makes total sense. How do you go about identifying these? exiles that may be covered up through some sort of trauma and that are, you know, they're not surface level. So a lot of times they're operating behind the scenes without you having any awareness or knowledge of them. Um, first of all, do the work yourself. What does the work so, mean? So from being coached by somebody in, so I've been coached hundreds of hours on this. So I've met all my parts. So once you meet all your parts and you're guided by somebody, you know, then it allows you yourself uh, to understand how it works and to identify parts and stuff. If, if you are coaching, you know, from the, the perspective of a coach or the perspective of somebody um, trying to figure out this themselves, first of all, Richard Schwartz, he has a great book called um, No Bad Parts. Um, and he encourages you to do your own work, but he doesn't encourage you messing around with exiles, right? He doesn't encourage that. He's like, if you if you want to work on the exiles, go work with an IFS specialist or an IFS uh, informed coach, right? Um, but the way I do it is typically someone will come to me and they've got a problem, right? They've got a problem. So I'll say to it, okay, let's say that problem is um, um, I have this addiction to alcohol. Like I, I can't stop drinking alcohol. So I'll say to them, okay, when was the last time you drank alcohol? Well, I was at a wedding last week. Okay. Um, when was the moment that you got into, um, well, cognitive dissonance arrived and you were arguing with yourself about whether you wanted to drink or not? Take me to that moment, right? So, so first of all, you, you get them into a state of grounding. You get them in touch with their true self first. Right. So they're tapped into that essence of who they are. And then you say to them, take me to the point where you didn't want to drink, but there's a part of you that did. And then typically we locate that as a feeling or a sensation. So it could be feeling this knot in my stomach. All right. And then what I tend to do is I ask them to increase the intensity of that knot to a comfortable kind of uh, feeling for them. And then I ask them to invite the feeling to, a living room. So I get them to think about a living room, invite them into the living room, pull up two chairs. And normally what happens when you do this is the, the feeling manifests into an entity. And 99.9% .9 of the time, this entity is a younger version of themselves. So then you get them to sit in the chair as true self and you get them to have a conversation with the part to ask the part, hey, why did you want to take that drink? You know, some questions like, why did you want to drink? What is your purpose in this family? What are you trying to do? And very often you'll find that these parts are just trying to keep you safe. So if you take the wedding example, um, a, a good um, a firefighter part who wants to drink might say, well, I'm here to keep you safe. I need to drink because if you don't drink, everybody else will think you're a fucking idiot. Right. That alerts me then. Oh, who's worried about? 
so who is this part worried is going to surface that other people think is an idiot and normally that part is that little kid who doesn't want to conform who doesn't want to drink who doesn't want to talk shit at the wedding who, who literally just wants to go on the dance floor and just fucking cut loose and dance and doesn't give a fuck what anyone thinks about him but he's not allowed to because this protector part this firefighter's like we cannot allow the world to see the real you and let's be honest right brad most of us have been trained to wear so many masks and don so much armor that we literally do forget who we are and we be, we we just become so like even like having a conversation today like coming on to it you know as a guest on your show it's a process that goes on in my head it's like how much am I going to reveal today? How much am I going to share with Brad today? Am I going to let him see the real me? Am I going to let him see the fake me? That this, this is just, just happening in, in the background, right? You know? So imagine how much of our true self and our inauthenticity and the part that just wants to play is just not even allowed to be, be seen and witnessed, you know? For sure. I mean, this is, this is beautiful stuff. It reminds me of uh, the work of Byron Katie, I believe has yeah, Byron like a, Katie, yeah. a similar, similar process, but identifying high emotional moments, talking through the stories and narratives that you construct in your mind to sort of make sense of this. I mean, this is, you know, in life, obviously this manifests all the time. And then in mm -hmm. poker, it manifests as well. You know, emotions, poker is an emo very emotional game and emotions are triggered. There's high stress, high pressure, high emotions that sort of generate some narrative driven thinking that can really hurt your performance um over the long run when you fall into that trap that's really really awesome stuff and yeah. i've taken us uh, a little bit off course but with the context you know of yeah okay you, your your growth and development over time right let's go yeah. back back to the pub days of why why did i want to be an adult so so sure so yeah. quickly um because you know, now you've got that context of kind of like what's going on in, inside or, or certainly my, my, my viewpoint of what's going on inside. I know there's a million different viewpoints, right? Um, the, there's a number of things in my life that are really important uh, for me as a, as, a, as a father and a husband to understand at a deep level um, in order for me to really vibrate at the frequency that I wanted to make a difference in the world, right? I mean, we we can all admit that right now the world could do with um, an increase in vibration, right? So, you know, I choose to um, do my part in that by working on myself. And then if I can do that, and then hopefully that's a ripple effect. So what I found in, in doing that is my milestones. Milestone number one for me is um, my biological father uh, vanished before I was born. Like he, and my mum was 18. And back then in the 70s, you don't want a bastard on your hands, right? It's like societally, it's not, it's not, it's frowned upon, right? So we've already got a lot of trauma there passed through from my mother to me as a child because my mother is like, what the fuck? I'm 18. Like, um, you know, so there's that. And then there is being told that at six or seven years of age, actually coming home and saying, why are people saying I look Chinese? Like, do we have any relatives who are Chinese? And then my mom's sitting me down and saying, well, actually, your dad um, wasn't Chinese. Uh, your, your dad isn't your dad. 
So me looking at this guy for seven years to be my dad, because my mom married very quickly afterwards and be like, oh, fuck, he's not my dad. Um, and then realizing in that moment, and I'm, I'm not white, I'm, I'm not like everybody else. And there was nobody in my school at the time that was Chinese, right? So my, my father was Chinese from Hong Kong. And then playing football. So football was my thing, or soccer, as people call it in America. And being, having the nickname Chingy. So everybody called me Chingy. My mom called me Chingy. And I kind of loved that. Like, I loved it. I, li- I liked having a nickname. I, I liked all that kind of stuff. And I'm around 10 years of age now. And I'm a grade A student. I'm really smart. I'm really just getting A's with my eyes shut. And I win in that year at 10, um, the player of the year award in my local football team, right? So at this point, everything's going okay. I know from the work that I did that my mom and my dad, like my dad who I know today, um, were not emotionally available for me. But because of my football and my friendships, I had enough uh, to fill my quota. And and what they lacked in delivering that to me, it, 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 it didn't seem like it was a bad thing at the time. But then something devastating happens to me at 10, and that's my mom and dad choose to move us from England, Manchester, and move us to South Wales, this small little mining village. Um, and in that moment, I have to leave all my friends behind. I have to leave my football team behind. I have no mental map anymore of anything, right? I wake up on that first day in Ogmore Vale. Everything's different. There, there's a river in my back garden. There, there are hills. There are, there are mountains. I don't understand the street. I don't know when I walk out the door what's going to happen. And when you're a 10-year-old, that's a big deal. Um, I went to school, and I was poor, and I looked poor, and I dressed poor, and I had a strong Manchester accent. And everybody had a Welsh accent and I had to go to Welsh classes and people would laugh at me when I couldn't say the words. And then the two biggest issues were people didn't call me chingy anymore. People said, oh, here's the chink. And I didn't realize this before I moved there, but there is a very heavy xenophobic culture against the English. I've now learned that where I lived against anybody foreign, but very definitely English, born out of the rugby um, culture. So then I started be, being called an English cunt. Wow. So and, I, I thought it was a racial slur because of the Chinese side, but it's because you're English in Wales. It was being English, being in Wales, and being Chinese um, as well. So there was the two of them. And now I've got no friends. I've got no tribe. Yeah. And my mom and dad are emotionally unavailable and I'm getting picked on and I don't understand it. So could I, could I stop one second? Yes, sure. When you, when you say emotionally unavailable, because I know there are lots of mothers and fathers that listen to this podcast. What do you mean mm-hmm. by emotionally unavailable and how can we as parents be more emotionally available for our children? Funny, I was talking about this yesterday. So, um, I think once you get beyond two kids, you're really going to struggle to provide them with everything that you need to provide them with. I just, it's going to be really difficult and really challenging, uh, particularly if you come from a working class background and you don't have the money. And what I mean by that is as parents, one or both of you really has to grind really hard, 
which then puts extra pressure on the other parent. So that happened in my life. So my father physically wasn't there. He worked away a lot uh, to make money. So when whenever you're working away, you're going to get a little bit of extra money in his overtime and stuff. So he had to do that to feed four kids. Um, and then my mother, when I was, I've since learned from my understanding of psychosocial integration is when I was very young, like two, three, four, and I needed to learn the difference between um, healthy shame and internalized toxic shame, um, doubt, autonomy, of, you know, um, getting my basic narcissistic supplies met and being felt like I'm a, a pretty adequate human being. Like my mom couldn't give that to me because she was she had two girls very quickly after me and had to take care and look after them. And she I recently interviewed my mom for an hour. And one of the things that got her really teary was um, she said, I'm really sorry that I put so much on you too young, but I, I had no choice. You was you was the only person who could help me, which then goes to my dad. Um, my dad, when he was home. Um, he was emotionally unavailable. And what I mean by that was he would not tell you he loved you. He wouldn't play with you. He wouldn't kiss you. He wouldn't fucking talk to you. Um, now, I don't blame my dad from that. I, I realize and understand that his parents actually believed that having an overdependent child would raise him to be some sort of pussy. Like, I, I get that. I understand that, right? So he was raised to be harsh. So, so my, so I never had a dad. It's like, he didn't exist. In fact, like, and I have a huge wound that I've been working on because of that, because I, I crave a father's love and I crave a father's attention. Right. And I have a mistrust of men as a result of this huge father wound, which I'm also working on. And then your mom, she's, she's literally treating you like a husband, um, not as a child. So you, you lose that kind of childhood, you know, and another thing that was, a really interesting debate amongst people actually was um, is, uh, and I don't know what your audience thinks about this, but when people were calling me a chink and calling me all these names and I would come home and cry to my mom about it, my mom would have a conversation with my dad about it, obviously. Like, and every now and then my dad would come into my room and I remember him telling me that if somebody calls you a chink or an English cunt, it's only a matter of time before they hit you. What they're trying to do is they're trying to, um, they're trying to boss you about. They're trying to get above you in the status pecking order. And you can't let that happen, Lee, because if you let that happen, you're shit. They're just going to they're gonna pick on you every day. So it's like, well, what do I do? And he says, well, as soon as that happens, you've got to hit them. Like, you've got to smack them. Because if you smack them, they won't fuck around with you. They might beat the shit out of you, but they won't fuck around with you anymore because no bully wants to get hit. There's enough kids they can pick on, right? So you have to stand your ground. Now, there's, a, there's two ways you can look at that. There's one way that will happen to me is you become terrified. You become terrified that you now have this, like, I want this guy's love. And I now I need to, the way to get it is to like, to be a man and to be a man, I need to fight. But I don't really want to fight because I don't want to get punched in the face and I don't want it to hurt, but I have to do this. So then there's that part of it, right? And my childhood was very violent. Like I, I was in so many fights throughout my, throughout my childhood and in twenties, you wouldn't believe, like it was just very violent. And then there's the other aspect of that, which is like, well, did that help me become a man? Did 
getting into that violence and fighting and being battered and learning to be battered and learning your physical extremities and how much pain you can suffer and, and, the, and going through that fear, does that make you more of a man? And, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a question I was going to ask Jason Coon. I mean, Jason Coon's having a baby in a couple of days, but it was a question I was really interested to ask Jason because I know when Jason was younger, he had um, a very violent, abusive um, upbringing, and it was and it was interesting. I'm kind of like, what do you think about it? And like, same with the audience. Like, there's a part of it that I look back and I'm like, okay, so if a guy's going to come into my, like the other night, there was a drunk guy across the way, and I was able to assess the situation and say, okay, um, I think I can take him if my family's at risk versus if I'd never had a fight in my life, like, what am I going to think? Right. Like, but it, it, it damaged me for sure because it, it created so many, it fragmented my ego and created so many parts that were very damaging. And later on in, so I didn't want to be a kid because being a kid was so devastating and so difficult and so tough and so painful. And I just wanted to be an adult because, you know, None of these adults seem to be like having the problems that I'm having. Yeah. Like, you think about it as a kid, you don't realize that your dad's fucked up. Like, you just see him as this guy who's like doing his thing. It's not until you're a dad that you realize your dad was fucked up. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, not, it's not until you realize, like, oh shit, I'm 37 and, you know, my parents had me when they were around 21. So they were, you know, when I was 10 years old, they were six years younger. When I was 15 years old, they were my age. And like, they have many more problems, I think, in like emotional, psychological development than me, just because, you know, in the age that I grew up, we have so many more resources at our disposal, yeah. right? Through the internet and just, just all of the information and knowledge. If we choose to seek it out, we can typically find it. Um, so like they're, they were just kind of making it up as they go along and yeah, well, we all do, don't we? And of it's, course. Not, I tell you, yeah. it's not, it's not until I tell you like two, two, two things just quickly. I took my son, I have a 20 year old son, right? And I took my son to watch one of the Lord of the Rings movie. I uh, know it was one of the Hobbit movies and I took his cousin as well. And I remember I took these two kids to the cinema and it cost me close to a hundred pounds, like best tickets, food, hundred pounds. And I, and I called my mom straight after crying and apologizing for giving them so much abuse over not having anything when we were kids. Like I, I, it just hit me in that moment that fuck, like I'm, I'm abu abusing my parents because they never took me to the movies. Well, of course they couldn't because they didn't have any money. And Who's the idiot here? Codependent Lee, who's just spent hundred odd pounds that he doesn't have on two kids to go to movies, or my parents who were like, "Well, we don't have the money, so you're not going." Like, who's the fucking donkey? And then the other one is, um, I have a five year old daughter. When you shout at a five year old daughter, okay, I mean, I don't shout at a now. Let's when you shout at a two three year old daughter, and then you realize, fuck. This is exactly the, th I'm behaving like my parents. Then, then something wakes up inside of you and you're like, holy shit. Holy shit. Um, I should stop being as judgmental as I am because I'm actually behaving in the same way. What can I learn from them? Not judge them. You know? Yeah, like, for sure. And, yeah. you know, you were saying your mom was 18 when she had you. So, you know, when you're 
four years old. She's 22 and she has other kids too. To she has raise. two, two, two kids. Yeah. yeah I know, I know, I know dad and no money. Right. It's tough. I mean, that's, you know, her brain's not even fully mature yet at 22 or 21 yeah. years old. You know, we don't, we don't know who, who really we are. Uh, I remember that sparked something in me. I think I told this story one time before on the podcast, but a very transformative moment as a parent for me came when I had picked my girls up um, and we were driving and something happened. I can't remember what it was, but I don't, I'm, I'm typically pretty cool, calm, cool and collected. I don't raise my voice or get angry, but I got angry because of something that happened and I, I yelled and I remember my youngest daughter started like her lips started quivering and, and mm. she said, daddy, please, please don't yell at us. And I just mm. remember like in that moment when I was angry, I just remember thinking like, wow, you know, I have, I don't think I've yelled at them since, or it's been mm. very rare if they get in trouble for doing something they're not supposed to do or, you know, something like that. But it, yeah. it was never anything like that again, because I realized the effect that that has on a child and also the downstream effect that it has on children that bottled up trauma of experiencing these things. And then like you take that with you and you have these exiles inside of you that are kind of, uh, in charge of the whole operation in these moments that are not very good. And so like, there's just so many, uh, there's so many pitfalls to parenting. There's so many lessons to learn and, and it's, it's very difficult. Um, but but this is this is why I'm so passionate about this, right? Like if you if you think of the greatest poker training companies in the world, teaching people how to, I don't know, free bet from the bottom or I don't know, all that kind of profile. Do you remember when uh, Phil Helmuth had that book where like, you know, use a rabbit or a frog or a pig or whatever, rocks and all this kind of stuff? And I was talking to my wife Liza about this the other day, is um Actually, there's a lot about psychology where you could really, really understand the attachment style, the personality type, the parts that are activated in a human being, in yourself, like to go take you to a different level. Imagine if you're playing poker and 90% of the time your exiles are actually playing poker for you, not, not true self. And so whenever you're talking to, like on the Triton tour, for example, you know, I, I spoke to all of them around flow. I, I wanted to understand their, their understanding of flow. Um, and there's no fucking way you can get into a state of flow if your exiles are actually in charge or or your protector parts or your firefighters are trying to keep your exiles. Because like you need you need your mind kind of like free to be able to think, to be creative, to to process all the stuff that you're supposed to do. Um, you can't be doing that with all that internal chatter. So yeah, it, I think understanding your past and understanding is a great way of starting to understand who you are. And um, if you want to be on a poker table, knowing who you are is like really super fucking important, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I see this manifest in my private coaching students quite regularly where we'll be doing a session, they're playing well, something will happen that they don't understand, they get stacked, and then all of a sudden, the wheels start falling off in future decisions because I can tell they're ruminating on that one decision because, you know, they got emotional for whatever reason, entered a, a spot that they're unfamiliar with. Um, this is an, a thing I think about a lot and I'd like to know your thoughts because yeah, I think your thoughts <laughs> would be very important for me. It's, 
I think of poker players when we call bad poker players fish, right? Or mm. whales, um, or you know, Rex or fun player, whatever the whatever the label typically is. I tend to go with fish and whale just because it's more precise than a recreational player because I have recreational friends who are better than me at poker. <laughs> um, but I kind of came up with my own label of instinctual. And that's kind of how I look at new players. They play based on their human instincts and what emotions arise and what those emotions sort of inform them as to what their actions should be. And what I found is that whenever a really good player who's put in a thousand hours, 10,000 hours of poker, whenever they hit a part of the decision tree that they're unfamiliar with, they've never experienced it before and it's confusing, they often revert to being an instinctual player who's trying to just navigate through their emotions and how they feel. So that's sort of like, that's interesting in the poker journey. I think that before you, when you don't know anything and you're learning, you know, there's no like, uh, there's no chat room for fish to all talk about their strategies and how they ought to be playing poker. And, you know, because they all sort of play similarly bad across the board, right? Which means that there's something about being human that doesn't really understand the strategy of poker. So anyway, just want to get your thoughts on that as it progresses, right? Because the progression for me is like, you're instinctual about everything. Then you understand strategy. Then you have mental maps for how to navigate. Then as you progress forward and forward, you're less and less instinctual because you have built-in plans for a bunch of different eventualities and you kind of know what you're doing. But anytime you hit a spot where you have no idea, you're just going to try to make it up to the best of your ability. Mm, yeah. Okay. Let me... um waffle about with that a little bit and then you can tell me if I'm going off course so I mean I look at I look at playing poker just as like life you know so a poker table is just like my family here really right it's like I have a a lot of decisions to make there's a there's a plus EV way of making those decisions and there's a minus EV way of just making those decisions right um one of the things I've found in my life and this pertains to poker as well is um, societal conditioning, right? So we are conditioned to outthink our way out of problems. So this may be changing. I mean, I, I in my exploration of schools for my five-year-old, I can see that it is changing, right? But in the main, when I grew up, when you were in school, you were taught to think, like you wasn't taught to feel, right? So you're taught to get grades, you're taught to, um, learn ac academically and answer questions and, uh, you know, turn yourself into a thesaurus, right? And there's a part of that in poker as well in there. There's a part of that of, like, knowledge. Like, you, you were, back in the day when you'd get a poker book, way before coaches and all that kind of stuff, you just wanted to be in that scene in The Matrix with Neo where he's, he, I know Kung Fu. Like, they've just fucking downloaded it into his brain, right? Um, so in life, in life, if you... Like, I'll use myself as a personal example. I stopped drinking when I was 35. That's about the time within a couple of years of that, I created my podcast, 1000 Days Sober, and I started to create coaching programs to help people do the same, which back then was just quit alcohol. Like, I was like, I know how to quit alcohol. I'm going to help people. In the ensuing 10 years, I would say, I created something called the Strive Method, which is a six-month program you can go through yourself with a community of like-minded people you can talk to as well and talk about what's going on for you uh, with some online coaching as well right um 
an experience, a workshop with over 120 videos where you can stop drinking, right? I created that solely from the belief that if you change your paradigm, if you change your way of thinking around why we drink alcohol, if you change your way of thinking from alcohol is normal, unpleasurable, to alcohol is a poisonous drug that completely and utterly fucks up your life if you let it, and, and it's one of the top five most addictive drugs in the world. If you change your paradigm around that, then you will not have a desire to drink. And it worked because my stats that I've got, 62% of people are still not drinking after a year when they graduate from the program, right? Now, this is really important, is that is a success. However, if you just take me, I stopped drinking because I wanted to save my first marriage. I stopped drinking, but the arguments didn't stop. The confusion didn't stop. And she asked me for a divorce. So we divorced. I then go into poker. I travel around the world and visit like 28 countries across five continents in like two years. I meet my wife on the poker circuit and she doesn't drink. And I get into a relationship with her thinking, well, I don't drink. She doesn't drink. Drinking obviously screwed up my first marriage. This is gravy, right? Until my wife, now Liza, asked me for a divorce. So what's going on there, right? But then I started, started to realize, what's going on? Well, actually, what's going on is she doesn't feel safe in this relationship. Why? Because I haven't got control of my emotions. And you see the parallel to poker here, right? I haven't got control of my emotions. Why haven't I got control of my emotions? Well, because I'm spending all of my time up here in my head. I don't know how to feel. It's like I don't have a body. Yeah, every, yeah I cry at movies. Yeah, I, I cry a lot. But, but let's take anger, for example. How does anger show up in my body? Well, anger for me shows up dishonorably. I shout at people. I get nasty. I get aggressive, I get sarcastic, right? Yet anger is a gift. Anger allows you to prepare yourself to protect yourself. Anger sends that blood flow into the right parts of your body. But if you're not taught that, if you're not taught that anger is okay, or if you're taught like I was that anger is used as a way to put people in their place when they're calling you a chink, for example, then why wouldn't you use it to put your wife in their place? Why wouldn't you use it to put your kids in their place? Why wouldn't you use it to put your friends in place? Why wouldn't you use it at the poker table, right? So, so for me, there's an element here that I completely miss, which is like, okay, I need to learn how to feel, which is where you go into the parts work, where you do inner child work, where you're looking at your trauma, where you're doing breath work, where you're doing meditation, um, mindfulness practices, and all that kind of stuff, right? So when you're looking at the absolute peak poker players, there's two things going on. Either they've done that work and they are really good at getting in their bodies and they, are, they have their brain, but they also have their heart brain and they also have their gut brain and they trust themselves. When they're in a spot where the brain doesn't know what to do, they trust their body because they have a good felt sense. A combination of working on your body and doing it for so long that you grow to trust yourself, right? You go to trust that my part's not making the decision here. My true self is making this decision. And then there's another aspect of it, 
which I'm not an expert on this, but I'm working with my high stakes poker clients on this at the moment, is poker players develop the ability to actually turn off their emotions. So not only are we societally raised not to feel and that feeling is detrimental, but actually in poker, it's seen as it is. I, I don't want to get angry. I don't want to get too joyful. It's almost like you've got the, um, the do-do-do-do-do-do. And it's almost like in your brain when you're playing poker, you need it to just be going do-do-do-do. And anytime it goes do-do-do-do-do-do, you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. I need to get rid of that emotion. Or if it goes do-do-do, oh, no, no, no. I need to get that emotion up a little bit. And I remember hearing Dan Coleman on, I think it was Olivia Busquets podcast. And Dan said, I found it really difficult to have, to shut my emotions off when I'm playing and then leave poker and then switch my emotions back on and be a friend, a partner, a husband, a father. Like that must be really difficult, right? But in the moment, almost like a compensatory strategy, if you can turn it off, then you can just go with your brain and make all these wonderful decisions but then you do kind of miss out on the intuitive side of things, I think, a little bit, right? Do you, do you think it's possible to even turn your emotions off like a light switch like that? Because in my experience, anecdotally for me, it's not possible. And typically I find it's pretty much not possible to just switch our emotions off because I think humans are emotional creatures, right? Like we're born with them, we experience them, they help us navigate our way through life. And if it were that easy, then any time any sort of like horrible tragedy befalls us, a uh, loved one dies unexpectedly, we could just be like, oh, emotions off, don't want to feel this, you know, and that just that clearly doesn't work, right? I, I think it's like whack-a-mole, right? So I think I have, I have so many clients who, who just cannot get angry. I have so many clients who cannot experience joy. I have so many clients who cannot cry. And when you do parts work or inner child work and you, you get to that moment in time where it was made wrong and that child was shamed for not crying and you allow that part to cry, I see some beautiful moments and merging of parts right so i do believe that it is that you are capable of switching off certain emotions because i see it a lot however in poker i imagine eyes in life it activates that suppression and that repression activates other emotions in unhealthy ways right you know like just take the um maniacal um everything is happy everything is great everything is wonderful right and it's like dude, you really need to fucking cry. <laughs> you really need to get angry. Like you're not mm. active. You're, 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 you're part led in a way. So it's, um, it's, it's really interesting that when I work with high stakes poker players in the main, when they're at the table, they seem to have their shit together. But then when they are with their wives or with their kids or with their partners or with their husbands, they really struggle. Right. So there's, there's definitely um, work to do there to, to there's a separation. Let, let's merge that. How can we, and I, and I do think the, uh, the key is being more self-led, not just when you're at the poker table, but being in life as well, right? But poker makes that really difficult. It does. Because especially, it's, a, it's a tough game. 
Yeah, especially imagine you imagine you're in school and you're picked on to shit. You're a nerd. You're getting straight A's, but you're picked on. You don't get no girls or nothing. Like you, you're really struggling to kind of like even have conversations with people. You're really introverted. Um, and life's right, quite challenging and quite difficult. And then you get to become insanely great at poker and you're making gazillions. And now all of a sudden you are dominating these beefcakes at the table. Like you're, you're smashing them about. You're the bully all of a sudden. And then you go to parties and there are the most beautiful women in the world you could ever imagine, right? Are there in front of you and you can fuck them, right? Now, that is, that is not easy to um, self-regulate. That, that is not easy to manage, right? Because it is... It's such a 180. It's, 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 it's probably everything that we wanted when we were younger. And now all of a sudden we get it, but it's not healthy and we don't want to give it up. Our parts don't want to give it up because now all of a sudden the parts that desperately wanted the attention um, are suddenly getting it, but it's unhealthy. So the biggest work that I do with my clients is what I call switching from the outside in game to the inside out game. So we're either, either playing the inside-out game or the outside-in game. The outside-in game is more evident to most of us, and that is when I post – is just an example, sweeping example, is when I post something on Twitter, whether it's a comment, something that I'm doing, my blog post or, or my chip count or whatever, um, how am I feeling when I'm getting likes or not likes? How am I reacting to the comments or not, right? Um, and we've got ourselves into this – uh, need um, to get our esteem met by external sources because we've not done the work to create our own self-esteem for our own self-love, our own self-care practices. So I see that in a lot of my clients where it's like, no, I, I can't give up the girl. I can't give up the alcohol. I can't give up the cigarettes. And it's like, why? And it's like, and it's like, well, what will people think of me? Like if I, I will just, if I stop that and don't allow my protector parts and my firefighter parts to do that, and they let true self come up, no one's going to like true self. Like I lose all my poker bodies because they won't like who I really am. So these, these parts try really hard to like keep this fucking part of you hidden, right? That has got to come across in your game. That has got to emerge in your game. Like you cannot keep that shit separate. I think that's impossible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a thing that happens too when, you know, I talk to my private coaching clients about letting their emotions in and just feeling them, feeling feeling them, and you know, if you're upset, if you're angry, you take a bad beat, you lose four buy-ins. Just telling yourself that like you're okay, you know, I'm I'm okay, I'm still safe, I still I'm still trusted, I'm okay, right? Um, instead of just kind of like berating yourself in your mind or pushing the emotions down so that you don't deal with them and eventually just kind of blow up in a big way. Um, and always the resistance is if I don't self-flagellate, I'm afraid that I will be lazy. If I don't yell at myself internally when I make what I perceive to be a mistake, then I'm going to lose motivation. I'm going to lose my edge. I'm not going to be able to play longer sessions um, all of those type of things. That's the typical, uh, you know, that's the typical pushback that, that I've seen mm. is that there, we, we relate these things that we do that are harmful to ourselves 
in a positive way because we think we need to do that in order to put in more volume, to be our best self at the poker table, to win more money, et cetera. And um, yeah, I've just found whenever people kind of let go of those things that they hold on to, almost always they're way better off down the line than otherwise. It, I mean, it's like, it's like the major paradox of life, right? Around like, if I, if I work really hard, I'm going to get a reward. And if I don't work really hard, then I'm not going to get that reward, right? And then the worry, like if we just use financials as, a, as, a, as an example, um, I, as you know, I've been really fortunate to interview so many poker players over the last decade. Uh, a theme that comes out when you ask them, well, you know, what, what happened in your most amazing periods? It's not really the grind. Like the grind beats the shit out of you. It, I'm, I, not, I often hear, oh, I took a break from the game. I just, I sorted myself out. I picked my spots more wisely. Look at, look at the less. language. You look at the language, Lee. The grind, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that doesn't sound like a fun experience going through the grind. No. I mean, but, but here's a paradox, right? You know, it's like, like Igor Kurganov said to me when I was interviewing him, you know, for I Am High Six Poker, he said, you know, back in the day, like I was just eating so many frozen pizzas a day. I couldn't move from my chair. I just woke up from the moment I went to bed, right? Like I always just poker, poker, poker. Now, obviously he's aware that I'm super unhealthy, but then the paradox is, is that needed in order for you to get the, the, um, the trust in your decision-making? Like, can you, can you, can you at the beginning be like, yeah, I'm just going to take it easy. Probably not, right? So, so I guess it's it is a paradox because most people who say, yeah, good things came to me when I relaxed. A lot of times, the financial situation allowed them to relax to a certain degree, um, and the fact that they had and did that grind um, and have got that mass amount of knowledge, you know, helped them. So it is super paradoxical and. And again, it's a part issue, right? So there will be a part of you who a firefighter or manager part will be calling lazy, but the part's not lazy. It just doesn't want to do anything for the next eight hours because it, it sees the benefit of not doing anything. But it's not allowed to not do anything because these parts are too dominating. So the protector parts and the firefighter parts will always win out over... Um, the exiles because they think they're keeping you safe. And this is why Richard Schwartz uses the term no bad parts. You know, it's pretty controversial because if you just pick on like Adolf Hitler, for example, what Schwartz is saying, there are no bad parts of Adolf Hitler. He just is a fragmented ego trying to keep him safe. Right. Yeah. I can see the controversy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We see it. We see it in, we see it in poker, right? I remember Charlie Corral saying um we're looking at this pedophile thing all wrong I'm, I'm paraphrasing here so don't quote me on this or charlie hate me on this but i, I think charlie's theme was we're focusing on this pedophile thing all wrong we're like abusing and um harrying and uh you know like going after these pedophiles but when maybe we should try to understand why the hell they're doing what they're doing right what I'm is going on with them you know and he got fucking battered like he got driven off poker is like how how people were like basically saying you are a, a pedophile lover and you're really fucked up by having that decision so when 
whereby having that conversation or even suggesting that. So as an observer of that, there is a part of you saying, oh, if I believe in Charlie right now, I shouldn't say anything because if I do, people are going to tar me with the same brush and, and I'm not, and that's not keeping me safe. Right. Can I dive into that for just for a moment? Because I listened to sure. a great podcast by, on, uh, by Sam Harris, I believe the, the waking up podcast, or maybe it's making sense. I think making changed, sense. Changed the uh, name of it changed it. Um, but it was on pedophilia and how these things actually happen, like the process as to which, you know, you're 12 years old. I think we could all pretty much remember remember when we were 12 years old, um, we had crushes on girls, you know, that were probably 11 or 12 years old. And then at some point that uh, you, you keep getting older and yet you're attracted to the younger people. And that's like the crux of how pedophilia begins and goes and it's they dive very deep into that in that podcast it's a hard listen by the way if anybody seeks mm, it out mm. because it is on like child pornography and just the mechanisms in play and how you know privacy laws affect um that sort of thing but anyway it just gave me an understanding of like sort of the paradigm of where these people come from how they are constructed biologically because i think that if you're 16 years old and you have this problem, that's sort of like a, we'll call it a biological bad beat where you're sexually attracted to younger children and yet you haven't acted on it. You just, it's just a thing that you're feeling and experiencing. Um, I do think that like having outlets to talk about that and to try to unravel that emotionally with these human beings, you know, that is something that, <laughs> that is something that is worth investigating, I think, for therapists and psychologists and those those people. But anyway, I don't want to get <laughs> my. There's a piece of me that's like, shut up, Brad, you idiot. <laughs> um, there's a part of you. There's your uh, your protector part is like, Brad, stop talking about this stuff. Hey, yeah, I, mean, I even I, try to. I, I try to put the put the responsibility on Sam Harris, right? I offloaded <laughs> it from myself. Don't yell at me. Yell at Sam Harris for doing the podcast. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll tell you this, right? So the last, for the last two, two and a half years, I've been deep in the work in coaching containers with a lot of really top class coaches. Um, you know, the master coaches that I work with, people like Preston Smiles, Christine Hasler, Stefanos Sifandos, Alexi Panos, right? They're great believers in you cannot take a client where you haven't been yourself. Right. You cannot do that. And and for that, I'm really grateful for all the fucking nightmares I've had in my life. Right. Um, but on sex, for example, just one part, you know, one part. I have been on Zoom in Zoom rooms with hundreds of coaches who want nothing but to make a change in the world, right? To really impact and save people's lives. Right. No, I'm not just dressing up. They save people's lives. They talk them out of suicidal tendencies, they turn their lives around, right? And when we were encouraged to talk about our sexual shame, and I've done this in three different containers, so I've heard well over 100 people talk about this thing, you realize, holy shit, when everybody feels unencumbered and safe to talk about their deepest desires the things they did that they feel so much shame and all of a sudden that feeling of normalcy 
that fuck, how is it possible that these quote unquote people who should have their shit together are talking about things that would blow your fucking mind? But in that moment, when you're hearing people talk about it, what you see is like the Mexican wave of people. In the beginning, nobody wants to talk, nobody wants to share. And then you see this Mexican wave of people putting their hand up going, I want to, I want to talk about the time when I abused a little boy when I was younger. I want to talk about the time when I was abused as a little girl when I was younger. I want to talk about the time when I feigned rape. I want to talk about the time when I slept with somebody who was comatose drunk on the floor, right? And on and on and on and on. All of a sudden, there's something where you're like, okay, the shared human experience here is the human condition. There is a there is a side of it that we deem dark, which I'm learning is just human. It's like there's no darkness to it. It's just human. Um, and those containers allow you to do that. Like I think it was Alan de Boiton, the English philosopher, who said, if all the therapists in the world were not in a privacy contract and they could just talk about what their clients are thinking, the whole world would breathe a collective sigh of relief to be like, oh, wow, 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 wow. It is normal that I wanted to fuck my mom. It is normal that I looked at my sister's boobs and felt a little bit hard. It's normal that I wanted to kiss this guy and I'm a guy and everybody around me was saying I have to kiss girls, right? Like, and, and this is the beauty of coaching for me is to be able to first earn the trust of the person who's sitting opposite me and to really help them to see that whatever's going on for them is, is normal, right? Unless you're dealing with an absolute psychopath, which I'm unlikely to be dealing with, right? Sure. I mean, that's, again, we're, it's, it's powerful stuff. And to tie it into poker, back into poker a little bit, this podcast, I think when I started this podcast, right, the poker journey for me for a number of years was fairly lonely, right? For a variety of reasons. The major reason being, if I'm honest with you and the listener, is that I thought I was smarter than most everybody else that I came in contact with as it related to poker. And so interacting with other people were just going to drag me down. Um, it was mm. the, my output of energy was not worth it, uh, for, to maintain those relationships. So I was kind of like the classic lone wolf that studied and grew and did everything kind of, kind of on his own. And so starting this podcast, you know, when you go through an existential crisis of poker of like, what am I giving to the world? Am I just harming people? What am I giving back? What is the point? Which I've faced this question probably every few years of my career, maybe even more often than that, if I'm totally honest of like, I just want to quit playing poker. I'm hurting people. I want to give back. I want to help people. I want to build people up. This is not resonating. It's making me feel bad. I learned through doing this podcast that every poker player that has played at a high level and that has been a professional for a decade plus has had these thoughts and has had mm -hmm. these questions and has had these, you know, this existential crisis. And that was very relieving to me to learn that yeah. like, wow, I'm not like weak. I'm not just, I'm not a baby. Everybody's felt like this. I, I never knew um, until mm -hmm. I started actually talking to people and talking about their journey and their experiences and their emotions because 
very, you know, it's not very often that people talk about that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I get where you're coming from that there's, uh, I think Ernest Svensson, who I interviewed a long time ago for a different podcast. Um, but he, he said something, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but something along the lines of like vulnerability is the safest place we can be. We oftentimes think vulnerability is like very tenuous and we're afraid of being found out. We're afraid of somebody learning something about us that means they're going to hate us. But oftentimes vulnerability is the most powerful place you can be because there's nothing for people to find out. There's no fear of discovery because you've said everything, right? And I think Mm. that like layering in that vulnerability in your interactions with humans, talking about it, I just think is just good for, it's good for the soul, in my opinion. Yeah, I do. And definitely have an outlet for that, you know, it's like, um, I think that's, I think it's super important. I, it's really interesting because, um, I'm just thinking now, actually, of all my high stakes poker clients that I work with or have worked with, none of them have asked me to help them with their game, right? None of them have said to me, I, I'm angry when I play or I'm, you know, back in the day when people switched from technical coaching to personal coaching, there was a, um, a burgeoning kind of like drive to control tilt. You know, you know, like when Jared Tendler first came out and the mental game of poker and, and all that kind of thing. It was like tilt control. And I'm sure that still goes on. I'm sure that people still hire people for tilt control. But the people I work with, they don't come to me for that. They come to me because their wife's going to leave them. Or they come to me because they can't stop smoking. Or they come to me because they don't like the way that um, they are drinking alcohol to fit in because they don't really want to drink alcohol. And then they realize, actually, I, I don't like anybody. I don't like anybody. And, I, I, and that's weird. And what I find is as you work on those things, the game improves or they leave the game, right? It's like, why is true self in the game or are we in the game because our parts like this game? Like, are we, do we like the fact that we're just getting loads and loads of attention because we're really good at it? Is, the, is it a part thing or is it, no, I, I really, really love this game. I really love everything there is about gaming and I'm, and I'm going to do something really good with the money that I, that I earn. It, you, you, you get that question a lot, particularly um, it can burn you out, particularly when you get to that end of it, where it's like, fuck, this is, this is so hard. This is so tough. What else is there for me to do? And like anything in life, if you've been a, I was a railwayman for 20 years, Brad, right? What is a railway man? I worked on the railway. So I worked in is it for a freight logistics company called DB Schenker for 20, 20 years, right? <laughs> yeah. Th- this will cover all the time where we left off in your story at like age, <laughs> <laughs> age 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just whisk straight through it. But when, when, you, when you make that decision to leave, it's really difficult because it's like, well, I'm a railwayman. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do anything else. I'm, and all the fear keeps in to keep you, again, your parts kick up to keep you safe. Are you, uh, back then I wanted to be a professional poker player, right? So those parts would be, you can't be a professional poker player. You're fucking useless. You can't even do maths. You, um, you live in Ogmovale, blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and I guess what I find is when you get into the poker circus, it's really difficult to leave it for so many different reasons. It's not just about, this is what I know. And this is what I'm good at. It's, 
there's a part of you that doesn't want you to be alone. And if you're not going to Monte Carlo this week, or you're not going to Montenegro next week, or you're not going, you know, you're following the EPT or the WPT circuit, what are you a part of? Um, and it's, it's really, really, really challenging. I mean, those who, you know, really good at the online poker grind probably handle COVID a lot better than those who are used to like poker circuit because in a part, it's like, it's an energy thing as well, right? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I can say that I've had my own crisis just with this podcast and I've talked about it before of like my identity there's a, a large piece of me in my identity that says I am a professional poker player. This is mm. what I have devoted my life to since the age of 19 years old and do a podcast for a year and a half. I'm playing less poker. And what I find is uh, I, there's a p large part of me that desires to still be a professional poker player. But the reality is that right now I do not play poker as my profession. Right now, I'm a coach, I create content, I create strategies, I sell courses, I'm a business builder, and I'm not a professional poker player. And that's that's a hard thing to give up. And I've had many, many times in this journey where I've been like, you know what? I just want to be a professional poker player again. Like I want, mm. I want to pursue that again because that's fun. I understand that. I can deal with it. I can do it at a high level. It's really awesome. But I think if we were to boil down, you know, my true self. I would say that my true self is a strategist. I love strategy and I love the game of poker. And I think that's, you know, before we had this conversation, you know, I, I don't know that I would have been this self-aware, but I, in, in the fifth grade, I was solving tic-tac-toe and building brackets to play. In the, the ninth grade, I spend my hours in lit class creating spade strategies because I loved playing spades. It pulled me in. And so I can say definitively that like the strategy of things is what I'm passionate about and I love it. Mm -hmm. And no matter what I'm involved in, in my life, strategy is going to be a part of it because it's fun to me. It's compelling. It's solving a puzzle. That's what I, that's what I genuinely love. Sometimes I don't even love playing the game as much as I love creating strategies and thinking about the game at a high level, right? I think that's mm. that's kind of interesting as well. But yeah, I guess throughout this process of my poker journey, I, I'm just always going to create strategies for one thing or another. That's what I love. And whether or not I you know, am able to play some cards uh, on a part-time or full-time basis, I guess, is what it is and we'll see moving forward. It is in the plans, but mainly... I'll focus on the strategy aspect. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, um, yeah, he's asking yourself that question. Well, why am I missing poker right now? Who's missing poker right now? What parts of me are missing poker and having a conversation with him. And like the other day I had a client of mine. Um, she had stopped drinking for all, I don't know. It's like a year or something. And she started to have thoughts of drinking again. And, um, we just talked at a part and it was like, okay, um, what, what, what are you missing? What emotion are you missing here that you think that drink is going to give you? And it was joy. And it was like, okay, so if we could give you joy, we could just cut you loose and give you joy in other areas. What would you want to do? Uh, and she told us all these different things that she wanted to do. She didn't want to drink, but, but she was being penned in by the other parts who didn't want her to do those other things. So 
it's it's almost like yeah what what do i want to do with poker well i i just want joy or i want people to see me again i want to be good at something again and then following that loop to what is it really about and can i get it out of outside of poker like being a strategist for example what a like what a wonderful way of strategizing your life like it's looking at your life as a strategy like i had this client the other day trying to give up smoking you know um he was really struggling and i said yeah but you became one of the best poker players in the world what was that about well i just wanted to beat every fucker like i wanted to be the fucking biggest boss i saw all these people and i just want to be better than them well okay well there's a lot of people who don't smoke that are looking at you thinking you're a fucking idiot right don't don't you want to be better than them is there a way that you can strategize your life and look at these people that you really respect and admire that you want to become who don't smoke who really look after their health could you strategize that could you turn that into a game Fuck, i think i could do that right well let's that's the grind right let's let's, let's that's the grind that we want to do like how how can we do that like how can we flip it around and that just came up for me when he was talking about strategy i had a simple i had a similar one um when when i first gave up drinking i uh I started doing some work with um, Jack Hanfield and his success principles coaching program. And his coach at the time said to me, uh, like, what's your meaning and purpose? What are you here to do? And it was the first time anybody had ever asked me. I was like 35. I remember um, crying, crying, like just breaking down, like, because I didn't know. And uh, all these parts were coming up and shaming me because I had just wasted my time on the railway and I didn't know what I was doing. I was 35. I'd like wasted like a third of my life. And she just said to me, just write a list, write a list of the things that fill you with joy. And one of the things I wrote on the list was I love talking. I just like talking. I like being in a room, talking to people and telling stories and being the center of attention with my voice. And whilst I learned that that was a compensatory strategy born out of this path that was never seen and never loved, and I was able to heal that, it, it did lead me to create a podcast. It, it did lead me to, you know, to just follow my felt sense and create this thing where I literally can just talk to people for hours and share stories, but not from an unhealthy way so there would have been a time where i kind of would have been like oh yeah i'm gonna go on uh brad's podcast i really hope i do a good job i really hope people like me uh etc etc right whereas today liza was like are you gonna prepare for your podcast and i said well no because I'm, I'm just gonna be talking about myself and helping people and i do that every day anyway so i don't i don't have to worry about it right like the energy has shifted you know what i mean it's like it's not toxic it's uh it's healthy yeah but it but it all came out of can you really make a living out of talking? Yeah, if you really want to. Yeah, many people do. Yeah. Um, many people do. You've survived pre-flop boot camp. You've shot the fish in a barrel. Now, prepare yourself for the feeding frenzy. A comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool. Data-driven hero bluffs, light call-downs, and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings. Feeding Frenzy. 
Available now at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash FeedingFrenzy. Let's segue back a little bit back into your into your story. Um, we're we're I think we're approaching now an hour twenty, and there's no chance we're going to get to any of my my lightning round questions or the follow up questions. So at the at the end of this, you know, I'd be happy to invite you back for round two um, at some point some point in the future uh, because a this has just been an amazing conversation and not knowing you or having ever spoken with you before this conversation, I can say, yeah, I, I want more Lee Davy in my life. I think that's, that's probably a good <laughs> thing. Thank you. Um, but yeah, going back to you, you know, you found poker in the pub, uh, and you're growing up, you played soccer. So like what led you to, you know, really latching on to poker, I guess. When did you start taking poker seriously or when did it become a serious part of your life? I guess, uh, let me do this quickly then. So I started playing poker in the pubs and I went to Vegas on a bachelor party and I didn't even know the rules and I played some games and I came back and then I started to study and I started to win and we created a local home game. Um, and we played every Thursday and we would play like a 10 pound rebuy tournament. And then when you got knocked out, you play cash games, but the cash games, there were only one, one, but you would win or lose like a thousand. Right. Um, I was bringing home at the time, like three and a half grand, I think, um, through the railway. Um, so I was, this was like a really good way of making money and I was making a lot of money at it. And then I went through this, um, midlife awakening of 35 and I was like, okay, um, I've stopped drinking. It was like a massive, massive, powerful decision of mine. And it, it awoken something within me that realized that, well, if I can do this, what else can I do? So I started to look at my life and I, I hated my job on the railway for lots of different reasons. My marriage was, of 20 years was falling apart. Um, but the one thing that I really, really loved at the time was poker. I just loved it. It, it helped me to quit drinking whilst having, a, um, friends uh, and having something to focus on obviously getting drunk while you're playing is just fucking stupid um and it's the it still remains the only place that i like being around drunk people is when i'm playing poker with them because they're fucking useless right um <laughs> otherwise i cannot tolerate being around drunk person and if they're too drunk at a poker table i'll just leave because i can't tolerate them right so i tried to become a professional poker player i actually said to my wife and i want to retire from the railway um they gave me 45,000 and, um, and, a, and a half a year's gardening leave. So I, I literally called them and they said, don't come back. Um, so my wife gave me a year. She's like, okay, if you can make money for a year. And I, I only wanted to make $45,000. Um, I didn't, but I was close. So she gave me another year. And I had a backup plan to go work for Tata Steel, one of my customers at the time. So I told him I was going to go on this journey. And then I, I don't know, in this journey of being a, a poker player, I just said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to write to five poker companies. This is something that came out of Jack Canfield's success principle. They call it the rule of five. Just do five, just do five of something every day. Right. So in this case, it was, I'll write to five poker editors. So I did. Johnny Wenzel of Poker Pro Europe at the time wrote back to me and said, um, yeah, we'll uh, take your column, but we're not going to pay you any money. And then I was like, fuck, 
I've got this column and I don't know how to write, right? So that was how I got into being a writer. Um, I then ended up working on the tours. Uh, while I was working on the tours, I then said to myself, because I'm still freelancer this time, okay, um, what if I interview people? So my first interview was The Devil Fish. My second interview was Libbury. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. And magazines would give me more money for an interview than it would for an article. Then the live tournament reporting became like your mortgage payment. So like if you went to Monaco, that was your mortgage paid, right? So that became very, very important. And then after a long period of time of doing this consistently, I was able to ask for more money. Like, you know, I was getting more and more work. I was asking for more and more money and um, I would get it. And I was really comfortable. And then I got approached by um, Triton to come on board at Triton and to help grow the Triton brand because it was very new at the time. What year was and this? Triton, I don't know. I'd have to go back to Hendon Mob, but I would say it was maybe 2016. Yeah, 2015, 2000, 2016, something like that. 2015, 2016. Um, so the Triton Million was in 2019. So it's um, two or three years before that. And I came up with this idea of I am high stakes poker. So and initially my idea was, wouldn't it be great if I could show the poker world my coaching videos? So if I, if I coached you, I record the sessions if you want it. Wouldn't it be great if the world saw it? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great for the world to actually see what goes on inside your head, what you're struggling with? how you excel, how you think, how you deal with emotions, how, you know, the whole nine yard. I think this would be absolutely captivating. Well, of course, nobody's going to want to do that. But my interviewing style allows me to ask those questions. And that was when I Am High Stakes Poker was born. Um, and, you know, really lovely story. I was with Andy Wong, who is the guy who hired me for Triton. Pauls, who works in the who does all the production and sets it all up that so when you're seeing it, he's created it. And then Onze, who's like um, the director who's shooting everything. We were all in the area playing poker at this like one, two game. And the dealer was like, you're fucking Lee Davy. You're the guy who interviews at IMSA Six Poker. And I, and I was like, yeah, boy, I was showing, <laughs> off, showing off to the guy who hired me. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful because he was like, I love the questions. I love the relationship you build it with the people. It seems honest and authentic. It's different. Um, so yeah, that. So then I I actually left poker in November to focus on um, coaching. I just come back to trying to do a little bit of work with them, and you know they're just actually about to release. It's Tuesday now. They're releasing on Friday, uh, ten episodes of Triton Million. So the Triton Million event where they play for 54 million prize pool is coming on YouTube on the Triton Million. So go check it out. I was there from the beginning to the end. It was awesome, awesome, awesome. And they cut it really well. So it's really super exciting. Yeah, by, by the time this episode drops, that'll be live for sure. Um, yeah. Probably yeah. like a, like a six-week lead time or something like that from recording to release. Um, I am high stakes poker. Uh, so as somebody that has thought about 
names considering you know chasing poker greatness um i have a podcast that is named by the way it's not easy coming up with names it's kind of a difficult thing um where did i am high stakes poker the name of that come from i am high stakes poker it actually i can't remember how it came about but we wanted each player to look at the camera and say i am high stakes poker like I, i i wanted the world to see Anybody can be an I anybody could be a high stakes poker player. Why did I come to that opinion? Well, the people I were interviewing were so diverse, so different from so many different backgrounds, so many different cultures, so many different parts of the world. Some were beaten and battered as kids, some were born with a golden a silver spoon in their mouth, golden spoon, probably <laughs> golden spoon as well. Why not? Um, yeah. So I I wanted to I'm always anything I'm doing in poker in terms of content. Always from the beginning. This is the truth. This is a true story, right? I don't know that much about poker, right? I was a failed professional poker player. I loved the game. That game, that love waned at some point. Um, I haven't played for years, like two, three years. I feel really uncomfortable talking to anybody about poker, right? So for me, when I was at a European poker tour, for example, so actually when I wrote my first series for Bluff, so that was the first paid piece that I was going to get paid, I had to come up with a concept and I was like, okay, so I play in this local game every Thursday and it's not the EBT. We fucking think it's EBT. <laughs> like winning a thousand pounds at night, like you think you've won the EBT, right? Main event back in the day. So I would, I'll write about that. Like, so I'm going to write about my experience on this table and not everybody liked it, but there was a a lot of feedback of, this is when I first heard the term gonzo style of writing. Wow. We really liked the dirtiness, the rawness of it, where you're writing about this game. So then when I would go to an event, let's say I went to uh, EPT Barcelona, I wouldn't write an article about Kent Lundmark winning EPT Barcelona because I knew another 20 people were going to write that same article. I would write about my experience at that EPT from a journalist standpoint, and some people liked it. I got a lot of feedback that people thought it was very self-centered and very me, me, me orientated, but it literally just was my style that I felt comfortable with because I was afraid to write about poker and I was afraid to interview people about the techniques of poker. So I am high stakes poker is, you know, when I'm sitting opposite Jason Kuhn, I'm more interested in understanding his insane hunger for the game than I am in understanding how he learned to play the game, right? Like, I don't want to get into a technical conversation with someone like you should run rings around me right and i and that's not how i can show up for the world but if i can show the world a little bit of brad's and how he thinks and feels then that's really valuable and the feedback in general other than you know what it's like in a poker industry who is this fucking twat with a mustache why didn't he ask this fucking question like the tom duan interview is like a, a classic case of that you know you know there's a lot of shit feedback but overwhelmingly i think people get a lot of value out of it you know well in the content creation space you don't want people to not care (laughs) right and if people hate it then they at least care 
And then if people love it, I think you want to be polarizing. Like that's the aim. You don't want people to just be like on the fence, right? Um, The way that I think of I am high stakes poker, by the way, just visually, and this could just be uh, (laughs) something I constructed in my own mind, but I, I imagine these guys like the Jason Coons of the world. I think of poker like on a granular level, and it's actually how in some coaching sessions I'll talk about table construction, right? If we're playing a six max table, like how the table is constructed, if you have a very aggressive three better on your left, your strategies are going to differ than if you have like a very passive fish on your left, right? Like it's just the game is evolving and changing and, you know, like you're playing high stakes poker and like you've got normal average player on your left, that guy stands up, you know, Garrett sits down on your left. You're like, oh shit, like things my strategies have just shifted because the dynamics have changed because the configuration has changed. And when I think of like nosebleed and high stakes poker, I think of that pool as being somewhat shallow. There's not a lot of people who are in the nosebleed poker player pool. Just, you know, the barrier to entry is very, very high, right? Mm -hmm. So when I think of I am high stakes poker, I think of these guys um, and girls who are part of this relatively exclusive club that make up the ecosystem of high stakes poker. So in essence, each one of them is high stakes poker, like that on their own, you know, that's sort of how mm-hmm. I imagine how I'm, how I imagine that show or how I think about it. I don't know if that's what y'all were going for. If I just made something up um, <laughs> kind of on my own, my own association. It, it, you know, th- there's definitely a link there. Like I, I, there's the, there's a team in the background who so here's here's the thing about like someone like I am high stakes poker right is one of my favorite interviews like of all time is with David Benefield. One of my less favorable interviews is Tom Dwan. But the background team obviously want the Tom Dwan interview because the Tom Dwan interview is going to drive more hits. People are going to be more interested in it, right? Mm-hmm. But for me as a creator, that is that was a really difficult interview to connect with tom and to provide the person with what they need but it doesn't really matter when you're looking at the metrics when there's something like david benefield and it's like wow we really connected we really touched on some really important points um only the true kind of like i love this series is going to be into that so i was always fighting with the background team of um yeah we need to get those giants but i want to get everyone like i want to get everyone because i want even if you think this guy is a complete and utter fucking uh, whatever you think, I want to sit down and interview them because that is I am high stakes poker, right? So a Christoph Vogelsang, a Max Greenwood, a JC Alvarado, a Jason Kuhn, a Tom Dwan and Phil Ivey are totally different people, but they all sit down at the same table and play the same game. Isn't that interesting? Like, I think that is really interesting. And they all have or will have or may have wives, husbands, children, mums, dads, brothers, sisters, friends. Like, how does this all work? Like, how do they, because poker is not everything. It's a, it's a part of the overall strategy of life. How does it all fit together? You know, and I, I find like when Jason Kuhn, has, like Jason, by the time this comes out, Jason would hopefully would have had a really healthy baby boy, right? Like, I'm really interested to find out how that works. Like how, what will happen in the relationship? 
how, how will Jason play less poker in order to be there for his child? Will he put more pressure on Bianca? Um, how will that dynamic work? How will it affect his game with a kid screaming? Will they have to have separate rooms when they go and try an event so he can get his sleep? Like, I think this is really interesting shit. And other people are just like, what the fuck? This is so boring. Why didn't you ask him? what his biggest ever side bet win was <laughs> like, so you can't please everybody, right? Like you just follow your trust, your gut and your own instinct and follow your own curiosity. I mean, that's what I do. That's what I do with this show. And I think I actually asked Jason that question when he came on about, you know, basically whenever you're pursuing something at a world-class level, um, you don't also get to be a world-class parent because the pursuit of greatness is by nature, a selfish pursuit. And there are sacrifices to be made. Um, and yeah, I, I'm interested in that as well. And, I, and you know, Jason basically said like he was going to pull back. I think that, that was how he felt at the time. Whenever it happens, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to play less mm. hours. And, you know, maybe I won't be at the peak of my poker powers, but I can still play in good games where I'm a favorite and make enough money, you know? Yeah, I think, I think that's incredibly important. I think the first time I kind of remember getting hit with that one was Phil LaPower Taylor, who is like the best dart player that ever lived. And he was being interviewed and he said, they said, how did you get so good? And he was like, well, sacrifices. Like I had to sacrifice my time with my kids. Like I could not be there for my kids. I just had to stand in front of a board 18 hours a day, hitting treble 20 when my kid wanted me to play with them. That was a sacrifice. And I live with that to this day. And I thought sure. it was a really beautiful fractured moment of the human condition and soul. Right. Absolutely. It, it happened with me with my friend, Adam Creek, who's an Olympic gold medalist. You know, I asked him when people that you're training with, um, they have children, like how do they, how, how are they able to be a good father and also compete at an Olympic level as a rower? And he just mm -hmm. said, they don't. Yeah, the, they can't. The fact of the matter is they can't, they have mm -hmm. to choose. And I think when you're approaching that rarefied air of greatness, those are the kind of choices that, that people have to make. Um, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of regret that can come with those, those decisions, especially with time that you can't get back. But it, again, if you think you can be the best at everything, you're just kind of deluding yourself because you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So we'll do lightning round and then, then we'll sure. wrap, wrap up. So lightning round in your poker journey, what are some unexpected things that have happened to you? I think the, I think the, the biggest one is um, after 20 years straight out of school, I left school at 16, working for different railway companies and ultimately D.B. Schenker and thinking literally that I would retire at 55 on the railway. Poker showed me that I am more capable than I think I am of doing whatever I need to do if I put my mind to it and I'm willing to make those sacrifices, which then um, spills out to the world. Um, and I can see like other people who, yeah, can do the same thing. And I, and I know that physical constraints, obviously, um, but even, um, even the F1 documentary, you know, that's on Netflix, there's a, a young um, F1 driver on there. It was poor as shit. Like he, he couldn't, he should not be an F1 driver because you need financial backing to get a seat, but he got there. Right. So it's like, it's really interesting. So it's that it's knowing that, oh, I can write. Um, I can interview, I can create a career of something completely different. Yeah, I love that. And it's been a common theme in some recent CPG episodes that I think a lot of times we sell ourselves short 
and we sort of put a, an unnecessary cap on what we're capable of and what we can accomplish. And it's, it's much better to realize that sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. When you think about joy in your career, playing and covering and writing about poker, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Uh, um, two, two moments. Um, one is South Africa. Uh, Dominic, we, Dominic Niche won his World Poker Tour title, uh, his first one. And none of his friends turned up to rail him. And, and I was there with him and I, I hugged him in that moment. And I just felt how much it meant to him. And to be there for him in that moment was really cool. And another one similar, Roberto Romanello with WPT Bratislava, he was heads up with Mayu Roku. And I had this ridiculous setup where I was literally sitting like a couple of feet away from them, typing on my computer, hand for hand on my own. And Roberto is a good friend of mine and he won. And I couldn't stop crying and he couldn't stop crying. And he just came straight to, I'm still typing the last hand and he just came straight to me and we just embraced and hugged. And um, so those, those moments stick out to me as, you know, yeah, those moments, yeah. Yeah, being there when your friends do something amazing, I think. Yeah, well, Roberto was my friend. I would say that Dominic's my friend, but not as deep as Roberto. So Dominic's was very different. It was the joy of seeing somebody else in that moment. Yeah. Just, yeah, it was just look on his face. Some pe sometimes people go in tournaments and they just, they have this no, I don't give a fuck kind of face on them. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't like, it wasn't like that with Dominic then in that moment. I'm sure if Dominic won a, a World Series of Poker bracelet again, like his 10th or something, he'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but back then, but back then it meant something to him. Absolutely. I mean, the first time, you know, I, there was, there's a story, uh, Brian Hastings, who beat Isildur out of the millions in that one night, uh, that legendary night of online poker, talked about going to the bar after it happened and having nobody to talk to about it and having like, yes. despite, despite winning $4 million, he just felt kind of like empty and sad. And, and there's mm -hmm. like a lot going on there right like yeah. what's it all for if this is the yeah. pinnacle of our success and we got nobody to share it with then what's the point right yeah yeah i won a i won ten thousand dollars on stars in an eleven dollar rebuy when i worked on the railway and i came downstairs it was five six o'clock in the morning my dad was there smoking cigarettes waiting to go to work and i was like i just won 10 grand and he just looked at me and went, oh yeah and I, I did, I felt, so, I was like, who, who can I celebrate this with? There's nobody. Man. It's sad, man. We need people to celebrate our wins and losses, to experience that joy with other humans. I, I think that's yeah. just very important part of our lives. So um, I just slipped, see, I just slipped in my 10K win versus Brian Hastings' 4 million win. <laughs> hey, man, it, it's all relative, right? I don't think anybody's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's going to win 4 million in a cash game session in online poker again. Uh, well, I guess it's hard to say never because on a long enough timeline, I guess everything kind of happens, yeah. but it's unlikely. Uh, if you could gift all poker players one book to read and doesn't specifically have to be about poker, what would it be? Oh, oh shit. So many. Um, I think, I think for the overall hol holism of it, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, 
by uh, Jim Defner, Diana Chapman, and Kaylee Warner Clump. Um, I think it covers like so many different areas of life and how to show up as a leader, but you know how to show up as a man, how to show up as a woman. So yeah, I think I think that would be one of them. Another one would be um, the language of emotions by Carla Claren, McLaren to understand how emotions work and to view them as gifts and not something that we want to hack out of our body. But yeah. so many, so many. So many. And just because we're born with emotions doesn't really understand, doesn't mean that we understand them or know how they work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would it be? The, <laughs> the one thing I don't like about poker is... I call it the, the drink driving effect. So it's too much smarmy backstabbing and gaslighting and schadenfreude. It comes across on Twitter and comments to blog posts. And there's too many people out there that, that really have a fucking bad attitude. And I would like to take a magic wand to those people and really give them really put them in the same spot. So they've just written something and they're really proud of it and they put it out. And I want them to feel what it's like when someone says that was shit. End of. I want them to feel it. So I'll hopefully build up some empathy in them that they won't do it again. It boggles my fucking mind how anybody would ever think of slagging somebody else off on social media. It boggles my fucking mind. Um, so that is what I would, I would change yeah, it's, that toxicity of, of the slime. Yeah. It's, I think there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of silent suffering that contributes to this lashing out and tearing people down. Um, a lot of those folks, I, I just assume are suffering internally and just trying to hurt and bring down anybody that they can that's in their path. I mean, I find this interesting in the poker space. So I have an aspiration as a trainer and it's a high aspiration that is probably impossible, but I want to be able to train anybody to be a winning poker player that goes through my material, goes through my stuff. I want to like have the language, have the training, have the methodology, have the systems and the processes in place. Now I'm not aspiring to be a trainer of high stakes, like nosebleed crushers. I'm saying anybody that goes to their local one, three game, um, I want to be able to train them into being a winning poker player. Um, mm. And I, I made a tweet that was just something very simple along the lines of with the right training, anybody can be a winning poker player. And it got lots of likes and lots of hates. I mean, lots yeah. of like, just STFU, you're a fucking idiot. If you think, uh, if you think that like anybody can be a winning poker player, and it, that it was interesting how offended folks were, and even the thought that um, anybody could kind of do. And most of the time, it was like professional poker players were the ones who mm -hmm. were so offended at the thought that anybody could be a winning poker player. Because I think we think of what we do as somehow special and magical, and we're better than other people because we're able to play poker at a high level, and. Yeah, that was interesting, but that is my, my aspiration is to be able to teach anybody through my training to be a winning poker player. I'm passionate about it and yeah, I'm just going to keep saying it because fuck it. Like 
somebody's got to try. And if everybody thought that it was impossible, nobody would try and it would never be done. So anyway, yeah, people just, people are vicious, man. They, well, you have, they, you have a bold have ambition. Vicious, they have vicious parts. They have vicious parts, like what we've been talking about. Yeah. So when you write that tweet, there's a part of, there's a part of that human being that, that, that became really protective and wanted to keep you safe for some reason. And then fires back that vitriol. So then it's really interesting. It's like, you know, I mean, for me now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really putting out content. I haven't put out content since November in poker. Um, but it's kind of like, okay, if somebody is, um, critical of my interview with Tom Dwan, then, um, where is the grain of truth in that? Like, I, I'm, that's how I'm looking at it. It's like, what is this person saying? You know, it's like, um, this is one of the worst interviews I've seen. I could be like, well, yeah, it, maybe it is, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's how I'm trying to deal with it and not, sure. not, not make it about me. Yeah. You know? Oh, I totally made it about, I think less than 24 hours later, I made another tweet. I, I said, um, correction. Some of you are too fucking dumb to. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that it. was, that was how I, I attacked that. Um, yeah. all right. So, What's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? I want to help. I want to help men become better men. And I'm, I'm figuring out how best to do that. So, you know, there's, there's a, a difference between being a good man and being good at being a man. And I'm, and I'm figuring out how to work that out. I, I want, from my own personal experience as a man, to, um, let me, I, let me share something with you. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. So, um, yesterday I had a, I'm very fortunate that I have a network of coaches so I can have coaching whenever I want coaching. And somebody coached me yesterday. And one of the things that came up was when I'm at the dinner table with my wife, my five-year-old daughter, Zia, and my mother-in-law, I feel really uncomfortable. And, um, I, I, I'm very quick to eat and I want to get up and do the dishes and just get out of there. Right. And working with my parts. Like, so the coach was like, okay, what part of you wants to leave? Like, who is it? Who are you running away from on the table? Who's the part running away from? Um, and I was, I'm running away from my daughter. Right. To cut a long story short, there was a part of me that doesn't like the fact that she gets all the attention, a very young part of me that didn't get that attention who really wants that attention. And then, and then another part gets really angry when my sentences are disturbed or my contribution to the conversation is disturbed because 100% of the focus is on Zia, right? Um, knowing that for me is gold, gold. Because if I don't know that, I'm, I'm gonna get really angry about this beautiful little girl who is just being a beautiful little girl. And that will come out in compensatory ways. I will shout out, I'll lose my attention. I might um, shout at my wife a little bit later on. I might uh, blow a load of money in, in poker a little bit later on, right? So, but is that something that a man is comfortable talking about? Because when you're in a relationship with a woman and you get 90% of her attention and then she has a kid and she gives 100% of attention to the kid and you don't get that attention anymore, how many men are willing to hold their hand up and say, that fucking hurts. 
it kills me and I get really envious and jealous about that child. And then that leaks out in unhealthy ways and my behaviors towards that child and my wife, because there is a younger part of me that hasn't been healed, that is fucking taking control. I want to talk about that with men. I want to talk about my deepest sexual desires with men. I want to help men to become world-class communicators with their wives, with, with themselves, with their kids, to allow their kid to fucking scream at the top of her voice, knowing that that is healthy emotional expression and not make it about you, to deal with that codependency, to deal with those inner child wounds. And I think if I can help men do that, then the women will flourish because they will learn, in my experience, my wife trusts me so much more. I feel so much more secure in our relationship since I got a handle on my emotions and did this work. But she is always happy. She's always happy. She's always smiling. I'm getting the love that I never had before because I did this work. So I think, I think it's really important. So I'm figuring out how can I make a gang of men? How can I make a gang? And make a difference in a world by raising the vibration because patriarchy is getting a bad rap at the moment, right? Like, and I think patriarchy for me is the little boy that was making all the decisions for 44 years of Lee Davies' life is patriarchy. That's the patriarchal part of me. It's a it's a boy. So when we say when we see patriarchy, when we talk about Donald Trump, for example, you know, and, and talk about patriarchy and someone with some power hungry idiot. He's a fucking boy. He's a kid. And, and recognizing that he's a kid is really important. That actually men, it's not patriarchy. <laughs> like we can't just fucking kill all men. Like beautiful, healthy masculinity is inherent and needed in all of us, men or women. And, and what we need is we need to be able to help the men become better men, not better boys. Does that make sense? It, it makes all the sense in the world. I mean, so that's where my passion is at the moment is figuring out how to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's a very worthy pursuit because mm. sort of understanding these, again, I'll, I'll cite Ernest Vinson. Uh, he wrote a book called how to end the stories that ruin your life, I believe, or something along those lines. Um, and it's just understanding the narratives the, the truths that we believe about ourselves from an early age that manifest and affect decisions. And we're just completely unaware um, and gaining yeah. visibility on that is you, you have to be aware of it before you can go about solving it or resolving it. Right. I mean, it's just, I'm getting all over body chills here because I'm when, when you know in yourself that you've gone through one divorce and nearly a second divorce and all the feedback is that you're some sort of giant cunt, but then you realize that actually you're not behaving in those ways deliberately is so liberating. So it was um, a tweet the other day that an Instagram post of uh, a codependent coach that I was following. And I see this a lot. And it was, um, it was something like you fucking narcissists, like pinning narcissists as being these, do you know when you watch like a movie and there is like a superhero? No, there's a supervillain that is like so meta in the way that they've calculated how to trick the person. And you look and you're like, whoa, how did they do that? So this, I see this a lot in my space, in the, in the personal growth space, is that that's what narcissists are like. So narcissists have this plan 
of this, of ripping down a human being and they know what they're doing and it's super conscious. And the goal is I have this wife and I need to rip her fucking soul out. Right. That's not what I've encountered in narcissism. I've encountered that every single human being needs narcissism. They need, they need to look in that reflection and at least admire what they fucking see back. Right. So for me, narcissism is on a spectrum. So for me, when my unhealthy narcissism came out and I gaslighted and I abused verbally, and I know this is going to trigger some people, my first wife and my second wife, to then say to myself, holy shit, I didn't even know I was fucking doing that. And when you brought it to my attention that I was a narcissist, of course I'm going to defend it because the world is telling me I'm not allowed to be a fucking narcissist, that it is evil that it is up there with pedophilia, it is up there with being a rapist. I cannot be a narcissist. So if you tell me I'm a narcissist, a part of me is going to say, no, I'm fucking not. It is your fault. You're to blame, not me. To then say to yourself, hang on a minute, let's not, what the fuck is going on here? I've had one wife who left me, another one is going to leave me. <gasps> Holy shit. I can see my narcissism because there's a little kid that didn't get his basic narcissistic supplies met when he was a youngster who is now playing fucking havoc. I need to deal with this. And for all of you listening who are thinking that's, you know, you're resolving um, responsibility. I'm not talking about resolving responsibility. I'm talking about owning it. I'm fucking so sorry. I made you feel that way. I'm so sorry that I drove you to depression. I'm so sorry that I did that. Those words when they're heard by someone, who for years you've defended your, your point, it melts them because suddenly they just want you to recognize them, right? Then you can go into your self-forgiveness process and you can fix things around. Like they're, they're the conversations I want men to be comfortable having. So help, help me find where my narcissism is because I don't even fucking know I have it. <laughs> okay, let's go there, right? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I mean, that's... That changes lives. It changes the paradigms in which we live. It changes relationships with significant others, and just yeah, I mean, it, it creates change in the world, and that's that's really amazing. And I'm again, for our, this is our first interaction together, and now I'm just super pumped to follow follow you and see all follow the things. How it works out. Follow how it works out. Learn all yeah. the things. I, and um, I, you see me. I pause when you said. What am I working? I pause. And the reason I pause is for the last 10 years, I've been helping people quit alcohol and I'm really good at it, but I've encountered a problem. People don't want to stop drinking, even when they got a drinking problem. So it's really difficult to make it a business. It's really difficult to help people on a grand scale and make it work. Because as you know, when you're putting your time in something, there needs to be a monetary value unless you're financially secured that you can just do it for nothing. And it's really, it's really difficult to get people to say, yeah, I've got a problem with alcohol. I need some help. Right. It's like, it's really difficult versus, yeah, I want to be a better man. Sure. You know? Yeah. And you know, that's, that, that's the Trojan horse. So you get in there and you can, yes. <laughs> then you when can you start talking about there, Yeah. Then it's like, what part of, what do you want? Well, actually I'm drinking too much. I'm smoking cocaine off of his tits <laughs> every night. Okay. All right. Let's talk about that as well. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And yes, everything, 
you know, uh, unless you're independently wealthy, um, there, there has to be some sort of monetary system in place so that you can do the thing you're passionate about and pursue the thing that you love. Um, mm. and that makes a lot of sense. And I, I just assume that I assume that you're getting a lot of clients, especially high, high stakes poker clients and people that want to live a better lives and that do have this level of, you know, self-reflection and are able to inquire about how they feel because I, I think this is a natural thing for poker players because through, for, through mindset and performance and performing at a high level at the tables, these are things we have to think about and consider in mm. any way and sort of resolve if we ever want to make it to um, being a high stakes poker player for any sort of time uh, longevity. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so let's segue from that into if the Chasing Poker Greatness audience wants to learn more about Lee Davey on the World Wide Web, where do they go? Well, you could email me directly at 1kdaysober at gmail.com. Um, you can, I have a podcast, 1000 Days Sober podcast, and we've had some great people on there, including the late Norm McDonald. So I was really lucky to grab hold of Norm um, in the Bahamas once. We have Instagram, 1000 Days Sober, YouTube, 1000 Days Sober. So if you just type in 1000daysober.com or 1000 Days Sober Lee Davey, uh, you will find whatever social media platform is yours. But I'm more active on uh, the podcast and on Instagram. I have a, a six-month workshop and program and community um, to help you stop drinking alcohol, but you can also apply it to other addictions as well. And um, so you can contact me for that. And uh, I do personal coaching as well, obviously, uh, not just on addiction. Um, the main things that people come to me from in terms of poker is um, relationship problems, uh, meaning and purpose. What do I do after poker? Addictions comes up a lot. Um, and learning to feel and learning to process and handle emotion, a lot of inner child work and uh, that's what I, I see in a lot of my clients at the moment. So just email me at 1kdaysober at gmail.com. I usually work with people on three-month or six-month packages. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome, man. And uh, 1,000 days sober, that's all a number, right? Yeah, one zero 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 days So Yeah, yeah, 1,000 days sober, yeah. Perfect. All right, man. Thank you for your time and your energy. I've very much enjoyed this. Look forward to a round two somewhere down the line. Uh, best of luck and we'll be in touch, man. Take care. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.